You're listening to The Vent Podcast, where we bring you interviews and stories from around the world of wine and spirits. From winemakers and critics to sommeliers and master distillers, we'll explore the people and businesses who are instrumental in shaping the future of today's food and drinks culture. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady, joined back in the studio only briefly today by Billy Galanko. How you doing, Billy? Doing well. We're pre-recording this, so I'm hoping everybody had a great Christmas weekend or holiday period in general. I will be up in Sonoma during this time, so it'll be great to come back and share all the tasting that we did up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we wanted to bring back a past interview that we that we did. I actually didn't see when the when we first released this interview with Bartholomew Broadbent. Was, did you know when it was? I think it was fall 2022. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, a little over a year old, this interview. So obviously, we've had many episodes since then, but this is one that Billy and I agreed was one of our favorites that we wanted to bring back because I'm sure many of you listening maybe weren't listening to us back then. Yeah, definitely hope you guys enjoy listening in. Billy, what was one of the reasons that made you choose this episode? Well, I think there are three reasons. One, he's just an amazing guy. He's the son of Michael Broadbent, if anybody doesn't know, one of the most claimed wine merchants and basically tasters wine people ever. So that was really cool to hear stories about his dad, but he's also really interesting in his own right. Two, I, I gotta say, if you don't listen to anything else in the whole podcast, fast forward the last three minutes of the interview, um, and basically the last three minutes of the episode, because my outro will be very short. And the, he does a, so he has a story about Julia Child when they were t- doing a Madeira tasting in Aspen. And it's basically the funniest thing you've ever heard. He does a Julia Child imitation has to do with bananas. Just listen. It makes me laugh every time. I just listened to it again as we were picking. This is our favorite episode or one of our favorite episodes of the past few years. And then last, he he has a passion for kind of more of the obscure and things that he's just really passionate about in wine. So we talk about Chateau Moussard from Lebanon. He claims it's his favorite wine in the world and really talks passionately about that. He's a really big person into Madeira, which the Broadbent's bottle some. So in the Madeira is near and dear to my heart. So I think this episode had a little bit of everything for me. What about you? Yeah, I can't, can't miss the Julia Child's impression. That's huge. Uh, definitely the hardest I laughed on the podcast, um, I think. Probably had to mute myself a little bit on that one. Um, the, excuse me. Yeah, Bart is just super compelling in terms of a wine figure. Someone who's, you can tell he's just obsessed with wine in, in this interview when you talk with them. Leads broad broadbent selections uh, where they've accumulated a number of really awesome labels. Um, they do their broadbent Madeira as well, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, under that branding, and um, yeah, I think his father Michael Broadbent, the famed wine critic, is now passed. Um, just a family who has a deep history in wine, and he has the stories to go with it. So, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense for bringing back this kind of episode. Yep, yep. So. I hope everybody enjoys that interview with Bartholomew Broadbent. Before we leave you, we know it's coming up on the new year. So we are going to give you a quick hit of three sparkling wines that we think are great at many different price points. So we're going to do very cheap. Um, So I'm thinking 20 bucks or below. I'll say that. And we'll say middle range. It can be 20 to say 60 if you want. That way you can get baseline champagne and then We'll do a top tier champagne or sparkling wine that you're also into. So do you want to go first, Brady, with a cheap sparkling? 
Sure. Yeah. I was just looking up the price um, of the one I had in mind. It's twenty three ninety nine, which we'll we'll go for it anyways. They actually have a few that are under, but I'm going with a cava that you can probably get at most either grocery stores or most wine shops. The Vino Cava, which yeah, like I said, it's accessible. Um, it's made in the Champagne method, twenty three ninety nine. Um, round has body enough to stand up to basically any food you're going to have around the holidays, and is awesome on its own. Nice. I'm going to half copy you and also go Cava. But this one I've been able to find in grocery stores for $10, even out here. It's Freixenay's Cordon Negro. It's like in an all black bottle. It's like covered by like foil or um, every time I've had those again, it, since it's Cava, it has to be traditional method. Uh, super lean, super bright. I think it's just really great value for what it is. Uh, and yeah, I think it's perfect for pairing again with everything like Brady said. From seafood to fatty foods to fried chicken, anything you want to pair with. Yeah. Yeah. And then the middle category for me, I'm going to gonna stay here in the United States and say the Schramsberg Brut Rosé, uh, which mm. I'm looking up, I think 40, I'm seeing $45. Uh, so storied producer, sparkling wine out of California, long history and pioneering sparkling I'm here in the U.S. Um, uh, traditional method um, and the rosé thing add, add that extra touch of kind of body and complexity to that wine yeah really awesome nice nice I'm trying to think it's hard to narrow down this band because I don't drink a ton of the things the same things in this price point over and over I like to try a bunch of different things but I guess the one that we used to have a lot during the pandemic and they used to be weirdly cheap in different spots in LA is um, just the non-vintage Hattinger but I would recommend that it's one of my go-to non-vintage um, bottlings. I think it always presents pretty well, has a bit of depth along with its um, acid. I have a friend here who, well, he used to exclusively drink Moet. Now he drinks other things. But compared to that, I feel like it has more body, a little bit more yeast, some autolytic notes. Yeah. So I'll go with that for my second tier, Tetzinger and non-vintage. Nice. And then for the top tier... I'm going to go with the Dom Runart. Um, let's see, which one am I looking at here? 2010. So Dom Runart is Runart's higher label of sparkling. Um, Runart, the champagne producer, uh, at least nine years of age lease or nine years of aging on the lease. I'm seeing here for that particular label, um, one that I had for the first time at Runart uh, when we visited in Champagne. Um, and yeah, really blew my mind at that price point which is um give me a sec oh little research on the spot here uh the dom <laughs> brunard looks like it'll run you between 280 and 350 so definitely on the upper spectrum of, of what you might pay for champagne nice nice i think what you might reasonably pay for champagne i should say you can definitely pay more yeah, everybody has to take into account. We're actually pulling from things we've drank before. I'm sure there's some salon um, and some salas. Well, I, have, and, I did get to have that, uh, was it 90, 95 salon or something was it like that? Nine, no, it wasn't 96, but it was it's 90s salon. And I looked it up and the bottle was like 1350 or something like that. And it was fine. Like, it was good. Salon had actually been a, a wine that imagined actually that i'd probably never get to drink it 
and I really wanted to for some reason. And then I got to, and it was like, hmm, okay, it's that's good to know. Uh, but I mean, it was, yeah, super good. But thirteen hundred dollars is a lot of money. That's true. But maybe it was just uh, you got to try more than just one from that at that time. What that's nearly thirty years old? <laughs> yeah, who knows how it was kept too. I, I had a similar experience actually this weekend. Uh, I had a. A glass of uh, Grand Cicla, Laurent Perrier Grand Cicla 25. Um, it's something we've been selling a lot of on the marketplace. And I've heard great things. And I think it was at a wine bar nearby here. I think it was just maybe, I didn't get to spend a lot of time with it. I actually, I had my fiance and I kind of split it. I just really wanted to taste it. Uh, and she wanted a champagne. So that's how it worked. But it was a little, uh, there wasn't as much depth and complexity as I was expecting. And I think the bottle had been open for a little while. Um, I talked to Adam about it later this week and he was like i don't know what you're talking about it was one of the best champagnes i've had recently um so he thought i was insane but again that goes to show you maybe it's just the bottle or by the time you're getting to taste it what's up with it i think for me yeah, well, i'm when, uh, so i was gonna say when i had that salon though too that was the same night that i dumped the uh sine qua non all over the floor so i might have just been frazzled too when i tried mine yeah put in the palette or just, yeah, <laughs> you, you tasted that in quite an interesting environment. If you had it That's right, yeah. at home, <laughs> at peace. <laughs> a lot of pressure. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with, I think my favorite, if I could just spend two to 350 regular uh, champagne would be Krug. I'm um, just the standard non-vintage. I haven't gotten to try um, any other vintage ones, but I love their, you know, uh, the 168 EME was one of my favorite releases of theirs just the effort that they put in the vineyards and in the winery and the fact that it is smaller production i have had some good vintages of dom including 2008 but they just produce so much of it 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 never really is as special to me as krug is so i'm a i'm gonna go with the krug non-vintage i like the 168 but they're on much later emes now um or additions so i think that though you can find some krug don't get a I have a, another story on that one. Don't get, I was looking for a half bottle of Krug just for a special occasion, found a random shop in South Central LA that had it. And I finally found it, but then it was like a top shelf. And I was like, oh yeah, cool. Makes sense. Top shelf. I'll get it. But I hadn't considered that as I was walking around, there was no AC at all in that building. Um, so they basically probably cooked it up there. So I brought it home and I, you know, it was like, won something for a half bottle and I thought it was a good deal and it was completely cooked. It was just horrible. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it was like brown, no bubbles. One of the worst things I've ever <laughs> consumed. Did actually. you take it back? <laughs> no, no. I, I think <laughs> there's not much you can do. Also, it was such a, a weird shop in the middle. Of, like, if it was one I'd regularly shopped at, but it was hard to find. There was... It was like chaos while you were there. Um, I, I don't think I would have been able to prove my point to the guy. Why you pay with a credit card? You dispute the transaction. You didn't get what you paid for. There you go. Well, maybe you just don't go to a convenience store to buy really okay. nice wine that has no AC. <laughs> That's basically yeah. what it was. I don't know how they ended up with this wine, uh, but yeah, there was a lot of beer and everything else that you would expect. It was basically a glorified. 7-Eleven that was privately owned with no AC. And Maybe it wasn't settled. Krug. Maybe it was like rebottled Corona. It, it was in the official packaging. They had other nice champagnes. I'm just wondering wh- why they also had aisles of chips and everything else that you might 
find at a gas station. So yeah, who knows? Yeah. It was an interesting experience. I learned my lesson. But everybody go get Krug that's been properly stored, preferably in a whole bottle or more. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, yeah, listener, let us know what kind of sparkling wine you're drinking over the holidays. And so we'll see you after the new year with reflections on uh, the drinkings and goings on of Christmas and New Year's Eve. Enjoy this uh, interview from last year with Bartholomew Broadbent. Well, we have a very special guest today, Bartholomew Broadbent. Thank you so much for joining. Pleasure. We've had many people recommend that we have Bartholomew on. So for those of you who recognize the Broadbent name, he and his father are come from a are basically two of the biggest paragons in the wine wine industry in the past many decades. So we're excited to have you on and we'd love to hear a bit about your storied background there. Well, thank you. Yeah, my father, who you referenced, is particularly relevant to the wine investment world. And that's because he, Michael Broadbent, started the wine auctions for Christie's in 1966 and then started wine auctions in America for Hublin and then the Napa Valley Wine Auction he co-founded with Rob Mondavi, and he then established the Christie's auctions in America and also planted them in, around the world from Australia to Switzerland to, to all over the place. And but so he was a director of Christie's until his his death 2020, 2020. But the other two things he wrote a bunch of books. I think there are over fifty books with his either written by him or partly written by him. And there are two important ones. The first one is called Wine Tasting, published in 1968 and continuously in print. It was last updated the year before he died. And it's a seminal book on how to organize proper prop tastings. But more importantly for the investment investors, he wrote a book called, started off as a great bench wine book, and then subsequent editions the third edition, they changed it to Michael, Michael Broadbent's Vintage Wine. And this is the most important reference book on old wines, on collecting wines, on how wines appreciate, how they develop because of his exposure to old wines and the finest and rarest wines. Through Christie's, he basically, it was the first book ever published with wine tasting notes in it. And it is, it goes back. Three centuries. In fact, the, probably the oldest wine is, is certainly from the 1600s, so more than three centuries, probably. And that's hasn't been updated in a little bit, but it is the standard reference. If anyone that wants to know what does 1961 Lafitte or 1945 Latour, any old wine that you want to reference and see where it is in its drinking trajectory, if that's a book where you look it up. Anyway, that's my background. I left England when I was 20 to move to Canada to work for a wine agency and then got recruited in 1986, 1985 to work for the Simington family, who are a big port owning family. And they basically hired me to start a company in the States to import their wines, but also to go around the US teaching Americans about Port Madeira, Port initially. Then in 1988, they asked me if I thought I could sell Madeira. And I said yes, because I knew the fantastic history of 
Madeira in America. And so I launched, I relaunched Madeira for them in 1989. And because Madeira had been absent since prohibition until 1989. And so we relaunched it and I've spent the past 35 years going around, 36 years going around teaching Americans about Madeira too. Wow. Yeah. And then in Broadbent Selections, which is that kind of company there too, you have wines from all over the world as well, right? Yeah. So I left them after 10 years to start my own company, Broadbent Selections, in 1996. Initially, it was just to start my own brands of Port Madeira, which we did. You actually may see the Broadbent Madeiras going back as far as 1933, even though we started our company in 1996. And that's because I sent my parents to the island where we started it and asked them to source some spectacular old barrels of Madeira, which we would bottle with our own name on. So Broadbent Madeira started in 1996. Broadbent Port started, we, our first vintage was 1994. But then first, then I got approached by some other uh, wine producers, Constantine Gunschirm from Germany, and they asked me to represent them since I didn't have to only do Port Madeira since it was now my company, my own company. And so we now represent everything. We've got three fantastic Burgundy producers. We've got three fantastic Italian wineries. We've got some iconic wines like Chateau Mouzard from Lebanon. We've got wines from basically all over the world, Chile, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, Portugal, of course. Uh, and some of them have our own brands. We make Broadbent Bina Verde and Table Wines in Portugal and Austria. But most of them, we represent 40 different wineries from around the world. Awesome. Yeah. So through all of these, to build these relationships, to get all these unique and high-quality producers in your portfolio, I'm sure there's been some interesting stories along the way. Have you, what are a couple of experiences you might have had either going to Lebanon or elsewhere that might be interesting to? Yeah. Chateau Mouzard from Lebanon is one of the most iconic brands in the world, certainly in the top 20 brands in the world. And it was relatively unknown back in 96 when it was, he was actually very well known in England. He was a household name in England because in 1979, they named him Decanter, the very first winemaker of the year from which they continued annually naming someone after that. But he was the first one. And when I started my company in 1996, he wanted me to represent him, but he had, he wanted me to wait until my company was established. And after about three years, he said, okay, you've survived the crucial period and he appointed us. But when I was growing up in England in 1979, when Chateau Mouzard was discovered in England, it was Bristol Wine Fair in London, in England. And my father had a Christie stand. I was slave labor helping him. Uh, and Serge Oshar, the owner of Chateau Mouzard, came up to him and said, Michael, I want you to take my wine. The Civil War was too, just too chaotic in Lebanon, so he had to find export markets. So he went to my, my father, wrote about it in Decanter. My father also wrote Decanter 433 consecutive months. And he wrote about it in Decanter and declared it to the discovery of the year. And he handed me the glass and said, well, you must taste this. And I tasted it and immediately, and bear in mind back then, our house wines at home were 1961 tarots, 1925 tarots. So <laughs> I was drinking the very best of the best, but 
that moment when I tasted Chabonsar for the first time, which said immediately, that's why I've ever had in my life. And I've never strayed from that. And that is now recognized as one of the greatest wines in the world, along with the things like Vegas of Cilias, Grain Chamitage, and Chateau Musar. It's in that sort of ilk. And as an investment wine, it's probably one of the greatest performing wines of all time. It basically goes up in value every year because they pull wines back as they release it. They release it. And the sort of current prices are up there with the first growth Bordeaux beats on tours of the world because you know, older vintages, you buy older vintages from the 1960s, which are in the thousands of dollars now. Wow. But they usually get launched at about $60, $70, and then they just appreciate every year they go up in value. When you're, when you're that young, having so many, like you said, incredible wine experiences at home and getting to taste the best of the best, was there ever a question, a question whether or not you, this was the industry that you would be in, or was it just, you know, it was so natural. From what age did you know that this was going to be your life's work well, as well? Yes. Stupidly, I should have been here grown to something like easy job things. <laughs> no, I, my parents never encouraged us. I have a sister who's actually now a high court judge in UK and very successful. She was knighted as Dame, Lady Dame Abba. And so she went off on a completely different course. I was, didn't really know what else to do. First time I took tasting notes, we were staying at Shuttle Tour. The, I was, think I was 16 at the time. And the director said to me, we, Gave us 1865 and said, this is the first and last time you'll ever taste it. So I took notes. I've had it twice since then, two or three times. <laughs> That's when I started taking notes. But I, after school, I did a cooking course. Then I went to work as a tour guide at Tennessee and Pontiac. Then I worked for Harris Wine Department. Then I went to Australia to pick grapes and work in wine, a couple of wineries, Hunter and Barossa. And when I was in Australia, I, I met Mark Hugel from Malsafs and Traveled with him going to wineries and his enthusiasm rushed up on me. And I, I wrote, I called home and said, Hey, I, to my part, I think I want to go into the wine business. So he said, Well, okay, then come home immediately because there's an opening at Harvey's wine merchants in Palmao. So I rushed home, got that. And uh, that's where I met the guy who offered me a job in Canada. Well, yeah. oh, that's quite the I think if I were to, I also did a small stint in Australia, but I was, you know, Hugo would come up to me and be like, hey, do you want to check out some stuff with me? <laughs> I would have been in. Well, he was my age at that time. It was just more like a teenager working in wineries in Australia. Yeah. We met, we were both working at uh, Yolamba, which is Portsmouth. Ah, big fan of Yolamba. Yeah, I was in the middle of nowhere in the limestone coast. So I worked with a lot of people who were like sheep farmers outside of what they were doing. So it wasn't quite as helpful as that. That's so cool. Can you describe the wines of um, Chateau Musar a little bit more, just for those who aren't familiar with it and kind of what it's like, and then we'll, we can kind of transition from there. Because I'm still yeah, they make a white and a red, and the white's actually fascinating because which are two varietals which have no links to any other grape vines with DNA testing, whereas every other vine in the world has links yeah. to DNA. And they're very unique wines. They're wines which age phenomenally. All the side petals, 1954, and it just gets more and more honeyed. So dry wines, it gets honeyed, beautiful. It really develops kind of like the from Chateau, the dry white wine from mm-hmm. 
shattering can. And it's a way in which you can keep opening in the glass covered to keep dust out. You keep five months and it's still going to be developing in the glass. The red wines are, since they're Carignol and Cabernet Sauvignon, so in style, they can, that was a <laughs> tasting group in Baltimore, Maryland, who had three consecutive weekly tasting, they do wine tastings. And one week they had a tasting of Chateauneuf, perhaps one week Bordeaux and one week Burgundy's. And each time some guy sneaked in Chateau Mouzard to those tastings. And in each tasting, no one guessed it was not the Bordeaux or Burgundy or Chateauneuf de Pep. And no. they ranked it the best wine of the tasting. So after that, they banned Chateau Mouzard at that tastings. <laughs> But I particularly like it. It's if you're a person who likes Chateau Margaux, for instance, you might love Chateau Mouzard because there's a an element of VA volatility in Chateau Mouzard, which is I find very appealing. And there's a very subtle but uh, amount of breadth of the character which you get in the Chateau or on some borders. Also, it's the most natural wine in the world. In fact, the so-called natural wine movement, which was established first in Italy and then spread around the world, the reason it was started in Italy was someone visiting Chateau Mouzard and seeing that they were making this wine without anything. And so, well, if you can do that, with Lebanon, you can do that in Italy. And bear in mind that we would know Lebanon was one of the greatest wine regions in the world had it not have been for the Civil War, because... The Romans built the Temple of Bacchus in the Bacar Valley. And so back in Roman times, the Romans considered the Bacar Valley to be the greatest wine-producing region in the world. And really, it's about place of wine around that area. Wow. Yeah, no, I'm working through Hugh Johnson's The Story of Wine, and I'm getting about to the end of the Roman period. So <laughs> that is top of mind. Romans also grew grapes in England and basically invented sparkling wines. And today with global warming, the English making superb sparkling wines. And the top one is called Gasborn. And I put that against champagne any day. I think it's making as good as champagne. But uh, yeah, we're, we, I had a 2010 Whiston, this Whiston, maybe how you say it, W-I-S-T-O-N, statement this past winter and still the best sparkling wine I've had. Yeah, they are fantastic. And I would say they, for me personally, I love old champagne, 1928 vintage will be fantastic. And I think these wines are the good ones. I just want to have the potential to age and so I'm personally anti-investing in wine for the purpose of selling it at a profit. And that happens, unfortunately, and Christie has really created that market. My father created the market, but my father and I both shared the opinion that really wine is a drink that shouldn't age to drink. And I suppose as an investor, if the investment fails, you can always drink the stuff, which is a benefit. But to me, I invest in wines for drinking later on, not for such Yeah, that makes sense. And I think there are categories like Bordeaux, for example, or Burgundy. There's some of these wines that do need that time anyway to age, and not everybody can have their full cellar. It's, it's part of the do here advent is we get the wines as close to the producer as possible. And then we take, you know, keep them in pristine condition, make sure they're taken care of. And then down the line, they will be resold. And eventually 
enjoyed, but it's along the way raising the awareness of these great wines and the vintages for people who may not have exposure to them otherwise. So on that note, speaking of exposure, can you talk a little bit more about Madeira and what it is and why it needed to be reintroduced to the U.S.? Also, I'm very happy that it wasn't in the United States until 1989 because that was my birth year. So now I feel like I'm even more one with Madeira. Yeah. So Madeira was actually basically invented through shipping to America because it was an island. It is an island off the coast of Morocco and the trade winds between Europe and America. And the, they used to use the barrels of, of Madeira wine as ballast in the bottom of the boats. And the one day one of the boats arrived in, in say, Savannah or where it was going, they forgot to unload it. They returned to the island, tasted it, and found it's much better than before it left. They figured having crossed the ocean twice and heated the wine. So to this day, we still simulate that voyage by heating the wine to 115 degrees Fahrenheit for a minimum of three months. And also, it's fortified, so it's like port. It is fortified with, with great brandy. It became the biggest selling wine in America by a long shot. If you look, read any history books, not textbooks at school, because all references to alcohol removed from children's textbooks in American schools. But if you read proper history books about founding fathers, references to Madeira everywhere, because they drank Madeira all the, all the time. Constitu- Constitution with, with Madeira, Declaration of Independence with Toasted with Madeira. It was the biggest selling wine in America until Prohibition. And then Prohibition wiped out the market. 95% of all Madeira was sold in America until then. And the post-Prohibition shipping had improved. The Second World went through shipping. So the island never got rediscovered. And it came as known as a forgot island wine. And so it just never recovered. But back in 1989, when I relaunched Madeira, we did it with a tasting at the Four Seasons at Seasons Clift in San Francisco. And we had about 400 people come out to this tasting. We had 19 wines going back to 1845. And overnight, the market was reborn. Before that, only two restaurants in America sold Madeira. One was probably Burns Steakhouse because they bought Old Auction Madeira. But the other one was Massards, who gave you a choice between Chateau Chem or Madeira with foie gras. But overnight, the Madeira market, every single restaurant, A, B, and some C restaurants in America, in San Francisco, had Madeiras by the glass, Trevenia or seven Madeiras by the glass following tasting. One of the beautiful things is that once you open the bottle, it never goes off. Wine itself has been destructible. And to give you an idea of the investment potential of that wine, so I sold the 1845 back in 1989. We were selling that for $45 a bottle retail. And today it's over 3000 So it's a good investment. And unfortunately, Madeira is very scarce. There are only eight producers. We make a broadbent Madeira. And sadly, there's just not a lot of land that we can cultivate because all the vines back from the 1700s, 1800s got ripped up and replanted with other crops that they can survive off. So Madeira is a finite product. And as the market grows in America, we've been seeing the prices go up. So it is a very good investment wine, something we're, we're, we are very proud of, Broadbent Madeira, is that we launched a 
a single uh, cask vintage Madeira. So you can, we went around all our cellars looking for the very best Madeiras casks. And usually Madeiras blended different barrels to produce Madeira, but we found these single casks and bottled them in single casks. And that's been really fun learning beautiful wooden boxes, really meant for collecting. But as far as storing Madeira, you should keep that. It's the only wine which you should store standing up, not lying down. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, no, so I have two questions. One, when it comes to the more mid-1800s stuff, you can still find a few around. I've been lucky enough to have an 1860s one. Phylloxera, it was a powdery mildew. It was odium, I think. It had a big effect in the mid-1800s on the quantity that was available anyway, right? Yeah, first, well, so OGM destroyed all, most of the vines for a while. But then Phylloxera in the 1860s, because of a trading between America and Europe stopping in Madeira during in the trade winds, Madeira was the first place to get hit by Phylloxera, which came from America. It's a vibe which eats the roots of European vines. So almost all of the vines in Europe now grafted onto American rootstock to survive because they're resistant to this bug. Wait, yeah. That's right. It took a while to recover. And actually, one of the offshoots of that was Solera Madeira, which is, you find occasionally, it's pretty rare these days. But when the, the 1863, for instance, Madeira was really good. And since Lockshire destroyed all the vines, they wanted to keep the Madeiras going, the 1863 going. So they would add other wines to those barrels. There was a law, different sherry, where sherry, you just have a continuous addition that's like a waterfall that you start with young wines. They get gradually poured into older barrels and you might have a bottle of 1863 Solera, Solera, which would have about a centimeter or two left of the original. But with Madeira, it was only, you could only add to it a maximum of 10, 10 times and not more than 10% each time. And in the case of Madeira, what was added to the wine was older wine because they didn't have newer wine to add to it because all the vineyards had been destroyed. So Solera and Madeira's, father was Solera, Madeira's were actually even better than the vintage Madeira's. Hmm. But well, go on from Mark now. Oh, that's a shame. Now one is go out and search for one. But yeah, so I guess uh, now moving back to more modern times when you're talking about some of the replanting, I was lucky enough to go there last summer to drag my girlfriend there. She had no idea what she was getting into, but she likes to hike. And for those who don't know, Madeira is a beautiful place as well as just making great wine. But and there are these, it kind of just all comes up from this, or at least the main island comes up from this central kind of high mountain range. You'll see all these little terraces of both vines and now bananas increasingly, which is a shame. I wanted to just go give everybody a dollar so they'll stop growing bananas and grow grapes. But can you talk a little bit about like the styles and some of the grapes that are grown there? Because that's, it's very unique. And then the, I guess the- Yeah, it's a volcanic soil. It's a volcano that comes up to the extinct volcano. And so it's very volcanic soil. The Madeira wine, table wines are extremely acidic. They- had problems making drinkable table wines because they've been so acidic. They're actually getting to perfect it now. In fact, we have broadbent table wines made from Madeira as well. So the styles are, and by the way, I agree with you how beautiful it is. And when I tell people, 
when people say they're going to Madeira and they want to go and see the wineries, I say, look, spend the week there, spend half a morning seeing wineries, but there's so much more to see. And it's so stunningly beautiful, most beautiful wine region in the world, for sure. And the cliffs are dramatic and it's just spectacular. So don't spend too much time seeing wineries. But the styles vary from dried sweet and they make them dried sweet using two different methods. One is altitude. So the sweetest grapes grow at sea level where it's higher up, they mature less, so they're, they're drier. So the dry, driest grapes grow fairly high up in the hills. And then also you can adjust sweetness by adjusting when you add the brandy to the wine because you add the brandy to arrest the fermentation before all of the sugars being converted into alcohol. So you want a slightly drier Madeira, you add the brandy fraction later, so a little bit more sugar is already converted into alcohol. So the wine ages rate ends up about 19% alcohol once you've added brandy, but you add the brandy when it's about 7 or 8%. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, something that I think everybody should try to explore there. You'll see Madeira broadly labeled. There's rainwater styles, but then there's individual varietals ranging from like you'll see Cerciel, which is the most lean, lowest levels of sweetness, up to what they call Malmsey, or it's made from Malvasia that's the sweetest. And there's a bunch of really interesting varietals in between. But compared to other sweet wines, or at least to me, this isn't a sweet wine. It's a fortified. But the acid structure that's in Madeira is so bright and vibrant. You can, I've had met ones many decades old, including that one that was over a century old. And it's still, they're still so bright after so much time. I think that's a really yeah, iconic. I mean, it's part of the reason that they live forever and they're indestructible. They, the hallmark of a great Madeira is that searing acidity. My father's desert island wine was Madeira. It's his favorite wine of all is Madeira. Also, handily, but you're just stranded on a, hot desert island, but the Madeira is not going to be harmed by the heat. The wine in the trunk of your car all summer long and still be great. Yeah. Um, and it just perfectly balances that sugar though. Anybody who's, oh, I don't like fortified wines or whatever sweet dessert wines because they're too cloying. It's like, this is, you can have a sip of Madeira and it just cleans right off the palate. It's so good. It also makes it a great food wine too. Yeah. Yeah. I could go on about Madeira for a while. I think we'll, we'll, <laughs> Transition for a little bit here. So Brady was just in Greece and you just did a talk with one of our colleagues about old vines. Can you maybe tell people something a little bit about old vines that still exist that didn't have their roots eaten? And because some of these are still attainable at really affordable prices these days as well. Yeah. So at the tasting that I was doing, the seminar I was giving on old wines, two of the wines, which I find most interesting, came from Swartland and South Africa. And Itata in Chile, and both regions have very similar stories of having been abandoned at some point. The conquistadors of Spain went from, well, from the Canary Islands of Madeira to Concepcion in Chile. They created the capital of Chile in Concepcion. And then, so the Spanish conquistadors bought winemaking over from, at that time in the 1550s. And then the French invaded Chile and moved the capital to Santiago. And so most of the population moved to that region and Concepcion and the surrounding vineyards in Itata basically became abandoned. And then the family Di Martino, who makes some of the greatest wines in Chile, the Di Martino family won back in 2011, 
had an amazing score for one of our wine, 100 points, whatever it was, top score. And they arranged the family dinner to celebrate this wine. And they poured it reverently and tasted it. And they all sat silently with the wine. And eventually the father said, does anyone actually want to drink this? And they all said, no, it's horrible. And so overnight, they decided they going to go back to natural winemaking and not make over concentrated, over intense, over basically parkerized wines. <laughs> and so they then started finding and looking for vines, vineyards in different regions, old wines. They found Itata had these ancient vines, probably some of them may have been planted in the 1550s by conquistadors, and they started it was pais and musket and stuff like that. And mm. they started making these wines totally naturally the way that it would have been made in the days of the 1550 Spanish conquistadors to the extent they even searched the surrounding hills for farms or gardens, which had old amphora clay pots, which were being used as flower pots. And they went to these owners and said, can I buy your flower pot? And they found about 300. 300, which didn't leak and they could actually make wine in. So they started making wine, natural yeast, natural amphoras made from the adobe clay. And then they, it's not adobe clay, but it's the same type of clay that you get in the, in the adobe desert. And they started making these wines under the Di Martino Itata, Viejas Tinachas labels, old wine labels. Old amphora labels and a spectacular. And so you can taste wines exactly as they would have tasted 500 years ago, which is, is it's, I find really fascinating. And the Swartland in San Francisco in South Africa, Fadi and Hardy Badenvors were pioneers of that region. Evan Sadi, in fact, one got named by the winemakers in the world. It's, it's called the Winemakers Winemaker Award, which is given at ProVine in Germany, and Evan Sadi won this award, being named the best winemaker in the world by winemakers. And he's making wines from these ancient vines. He's got vines back to the 1860s. And it's, again, it was in a region called Schwartland, which was the biggest wine producing region in South Africa, but that got abandoned during apartheid. And so when the new wineries came in after apartheid, they were all set up shop in Stellenbosch and Pearl, just that. So after working for big wineries, Evan Sadi and Adi Badenhorst wanted to have their own wineries and found that they could actually afford to buy vineyards, vines, and plus the vines in Swartland were actually still on the natural rootstock and hadn't been touched for years. So they, they're now making these great old vine wines in South Africa. Nice. Yeah, Brady was just having some old vine Assyrtico, I assume. Yeah, Assyrtico, I think some or many vines over 100 years old, but I think some of the older ones were 140 to 160. You mean Lesbos or what area? Oh, uh, we're in Santorini. Santorini. Yeah, yeah. No, we were drinking Assyrtico hmm. and the funding grapes, Ethere and Idini. And then they have a, a red varietal. They're growing there, Mavertraga now, which, yeah, is a lighter to medium body red bridal that is maybe more of a table wine there. But yeah, I would say for people, not everybody can afford or find some of these wines that 
are, you know, were made hundreds of years ago or even 50 years ago. But working in Australia as well, if you see old vines from the Barasa, there are some of these wines out there that are, you know, not exorbitantly expensive in the grand scheme of things. And you can taste wines that are on their own roots. And for those who, for more context, Phylloxera, you might know the percentage better than me, but it wiped out a majority of the vines in Europe at the time. So so vines that are planted throughout the world that aren't on American rootstock would basically mean they'll plant, say, Cabernet Sauvignon, but the bottom roots will have come from an American root to make it basically resistant to phylloxera. The percentage of those vines in the world are very small. So it makes these wines, these old vines, very special for the roots. Yeah, yeah and it's very interesting you mentioned Australia because, yeah, in the Barossa Valley, you're right, there's a company called Cirillo, which has the has really ancient vines and also can couple and make wine there under the brand with an approach to relaxation, which are very old wines. But also Tyrols in Hunter Valley has probably the oldest Chardonnay and Seminole vines in one because they are not impacted by luxury. They're protected from structure because it just never reached there. And, and the way that they keep the vines growing, the oldest Chardonnay vines in the world, is that when they see the vines getting too old, they will plant, bend over one of the branches and bury it in the ground, and then it starts growing as a new vine, and they just cut it off. And so it's the same vine that has been propagated and reproducing. So they're very proud of the Chardonnay, and they're the biggest semi-oil producers. Yeah. They're making great wines in Turles. Yeah, definitely encourage everyone to check out Turles. Definitely their semi-oil, I guess. Their Chardonnay, too. I haven't had that. Yeah, we saw some old... I was in Slovenia earlier this year. We saw some old vines. Their old vines kind of just grow up these buildings, which is pretty cool. You know, uh, that's like in the Tato and up the trees, and you can't get your arms around them. So thick, some of them. Yeah. But can you, aside from just being old and having their own roots, can you describe, I know it's hard to blanket statement, but some of the quality of the wine, but what's different from a wine that's made from really old vines versus, you know, one that's 10, 20 years, maybe? There's a, 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 a depth that you get from old vines, a wisdom you get from old vines. But, you know, vines are, and wines are like people, they, when the grape vine is young, the vine, they're producing a lot of grapes, so it's a really abundant sort of fruity wine. But, and the more grapes or vine, the lighter in ways wine's going to be because it's getting plenty of water. But when the vine is 120 years old, it really struggles to, it's old, it struggles to get any nutrition. It works so hard for each grape that it just produces a wine that has it's got just so much more quality than a young vibrant wine. Um, of, of like the old vines at Chateau Reserve, the white vines, they get one one glass per vine, mm. uh, which is the same yield as Chateau Chem when they make sweet wines because their wines are shriveled up and they don't get much juice out of them either. But the older the wine, the more it struggles, so the greater the depth and the elegance that comes out of those wines. It's always so, I think, to do with the old vines. Yeah, I've always found that the flavor tends to be like deeper, like you're saying, more concentrated. The tannins almost, if it's a red wine, tend to be a little bit more integrated or they're just like refined. And then... And I'm, and I'm talking not concentrated, not in the way that some people might think of concentrated. You know, some California cabs are just 
intensely concentrated and but that's a different sort of concentration. This is a concentration of elegance and charm as opposed to just obviousness. Yeah, like com- complex complexity com- concentration. Yeah. It's hard to... That's hard. really the, the, the word that you get out of all wines. It's complexity. And complex, if you say a wine is complex in your master's wine exam, you don't get very many points for that because you have to be able to explain what complex, why the wine is complex, in what way. But complexity is what you get from old wines, basically. And maybe it's length and depth also just being, especially length, right? Absolutely. Precisely, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say, and the other interesting feature is that they've grown for so long and their roots can go so far down that even in variable years, the old vines tend to be the most consistent and produce continuous quality as well, so... Yeah, and they get different nutrients. The deeper the wine goes, it gets different nutrients than the ones which you just surface finds. Awesome. So we're getting closer to the end of time here. I just have one one thing I definitely want to hit on before we go is, so I had one question about sustainability. With some of the producers, you work with producers all over the world, or you tasted at least recently. What have you seen that some producers, maybe especially in Portugal, are doing that are proactive sustainability? Type efforts, and then what are you seeing in other regions where people are going to have to, having to react to new climate conditions? Yeah, one of the things which we require the basically five or six absolutes. If you look at our website broadbent.com and see all the wines we represent, one of the things we require is they have to be family owned. They have to be making the very best wines in the region or equal to the peers of the greatest wines in the region, but they also have to be natural, as natural as possible. So we represent Barbersville in Virginia, we sell it in all the other states with the exception of Virginia. And Barbersville, obviously Virginia, you can't make natural wine because of the humidity, but you can still make a wine as naturally as possible by just adjusting for the one thing you can't escape, which is humidity. So, so all of wines we represent are very conscious of sustainability and we have a list of organic wines, we have a list of natural wines, we have, but sustainability is very important. I was just actually listening to on my Facebook like, this morning a, a podcast with an interview with Marcus Huber from Austria and he is, they were talking about how he's sustainable and it's very much of the concern of wineries, which most, almost all the wineries represent, are very concerned about that. Of course, the biggest fear they all have is global warming. Even in Lebanon, where you think all of this trouble and strife they get there, they still say global warming is what worries them the most. Hmm. Makes sense. Well, I don't think we mentioned this before, but I'm originally from Virginia and Brady just moved from Richmond not too long ago. So happy to give Virginia wines a shout out. So have you seen any of these producers doing anything specifically to mitigate climate change already, or are they just trying to continue to do their, their natural facilitate uh, growing the ecosystem? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them are picking grapes uh, these days and months earlier. Some, in some cases coming two months earlier oh. than it used to be. Of course, the only people who are not really complaining about this is are the English producers who being given the blessing from this because now they're making great wines, which they could do before. Maybe um, German noir producers too, which is paper good to guys. But it is, I suppose, uh, some of them are looking at varieties which are going to be more, more 
able to cope with tropical climates. But yeah, we're, I think we're heading into trouble. But. With your experience in South Africa, I was listening to a podcast recently where a Napa winemaker was like, we've, we're preparing for the, the future that where it's going to be warmer in Napa. We've planted some Tariga Nacional and we've planted Shenan. And I was like, I don't know if I would have gone Shenan right away for a warm climate, but what is your take from basically what you've seen in South Africa? I know that's warmer overall well, than the Loire. No, Shenan, Shenan, Shenan is what's known as in South Africa. And actually it's not something they've been planting recently. It's been planted for hundreds of years and so mm-hmm. It's probably the biggest single plant variety in South Africa. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think, you know, in Swartland, they don't even have to look for those varieties like Tarig National because in the Swartland, they used to make the so-called ports and cherries of, of South Africa in that region. So those regions actually already have old vines from those varieties. So they, uh, and they are finding that they are making great wines out of those Portuguese varieties, Barocca and others. Yeah. Well, I guess I was mainly saying, I know Steen is widely planted in South Africa. And I think that climate tends to be, when I think of Chenin Blanc or Chenin, I think of the Loire Valley and I think of South Africa first too. And the climates are very different. So I was just wondering what your perspective is at, for Chenin as a warmer climate grape as a whole. Is that something like if I was like, I'm going to plant a warm climate white wine or white varietal. Shenan just doesn't seem to come top of mind to me. Does it make you sense? Know, I don't have to go a warm climate, I suppose, but it actually, it isn't hot like mm-hmm. parts of Australia. I've never seen it hot like that. So I don't think that's the case. Like Beaumont probably makes the greatest of the Shenans in, in South Africa. And I don't, it's, that's in Bot River. And I, I don't really see it as a hot climate. It's one of the almost perennial. Yeah. To me, that sort of echoes more. Yeah. Also, in Chardonnay, Devetsov, Devetsov makes top Chardonnay in South Africa. And their cuttings came from grass plodding roots and they're grown on limestone soil, just like dry and bone is. So, I think South Africa actually has the ideal climate for winemaking. Their biggest problems are droughts, really. That's the biggest problem. And it's lack of rain more than heat, I think. So, yeah. That makes sense. I know when you go, I'm thinking a little more inland there, like the Robertson type area and a little bit more where they used to plant more wines for distillation that it gets a little, little hot. But yeah, for the most part, it is optimal yeah, conditions. The, the, the vets are, that's where they are. Putting the Robertson. Have you had the limestone Chardonnay? I have not. I'm not a huge fan of most Chardonnays, but these were planted and I love white burgundy, obviously. Yeah. And these vines came from burgundies and Bitten limestone chardonnay is my everyday white wine at home right now, and it's it's really great. They're making great chardonnay in that region. Really terrific. Wow, check it out. Well, awesome. Those are all my my questions. Thanks so much for your time, Brady. Do you have anything else you want to ask? Any, any go to wine questions or anything? This was great. I'm sitting at the feed and taking it all in. So I appreciate you sharing, especially around Madeira. Now I now I'm really starting to run out of space. But. I like that Madeira you can just store on the shelf. So. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And it's very versatile. You can drink Madeira with anything. Yeah. I was doing a tasting, the food and wine classic in Aspen. Well, my Madeira tasting, my panel had Robert Parker on it with, and Julia Child. And oh, wow. right before the tasting, Julia came up to me and said, 
bananas. You've got to have bananas. What do you mean? She said, the greatest food and wine pairing in the world is bananas and Madeira. So I was looking well and I told the, the manager, we've got to have bananas. I think they went to a store and bought them and sliced them up, put them in front in different kind of places. And at the end of a tasting, one of the tasters, one of the audience members said, can I ask a question? I said, sure. And he said, why do we have bananas in front of us? And I said, oh, right. Julia, do you want to tell them why you wanted to have Madeira bananas with the Madeira? And she said, oh dear, I can't remember. Uh, that, that, that'll be the, that'll be the clip out for this episode and ending on a Julia Child story. <laughs> right. That's hilarious. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bartholomew. I really appreciate the time. My pleasure. All right. That was our last episode for 2023. I hope everybody enjoyed the rehashing of Bartholomew Broadbent. I still personally need to go seek out some Chateau Moussard. I missed a tasting here recently of a vertical of it. So everybody go find some of that wine. Let me know what you think. I'm probably going to actually maybe have one by the time we come back next year. Um, In the meantime, everybody enjoy the rest of 2023. Have a happy new year. And we'll be back with another episode next week. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.